the Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Welcome to our Halloween special of the podcast, where we're going to be talking a little bit about the traditions of Halloween, how far back they go, and also how they relate to the culture of Scotland. And joining me today, I'm delighted to say, is our friend Robert Murray, who is the author of, amongst other things, the Grocer's Boy series and the Spirit of Robbie Burns. Uh, good afternoon, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you again, having a chat about uh, things that we enjoy chatting about. <laughs> well, Robbie, you're someone who has studied Scottish culture and history for you know, many years, so I've really been delighted to have this opportunity to have a chat with you about Halloween. Um, while it's become common to have Halloween celebrations right across the world in many different areas, um, people might be surprised to know that its origins certainly its modern origins, um, are actually Scottish in nature. So how far back do Halloween activities go? Quite a long way, Tom. Um, It's amazing when uh, you start to delve into the history of of Halloween that um, it goes way back um, into the the BCs. In fact, um, not so long ago I was just reading that um, in the 5th century BC, the Celtics were well known for uh, introducing uh, what we today call Halloween, but of course it wouldn't be called that in, in, their, in those days. They were observing festivals, and there's one festival in particular which is it's pronounced San Win, but it's it's spelt something quite different. It's spelt S A M H A I N Samhain, but the San Win festival was obviously something that. Uh, all these years ago was being uh, exercised, practised by the Celts. Of course that would be true of the whole of Scotland and Ireland I think basically. Um, and of course it was celebrating the end of what would be the summer period and the celebrating the start of the winter period. So, and, and strangely enough that comes halfway between the solstice and the equinox. So there are some forces at work there, but fundamentally, I guess, uh, the growing period, the sunshine, warmth, growing period, and the celebration of all the fruits of the labours of the fields and fruit trees, uh, and the forthcoming winter would be a time to take stock of all of that. So that, I guess, would be the origins a long time ago uh, of something that, strangely enough, 
here we are, many centuries later, still celebrating in, in small part some of those early practices. So at the end of October, uh, it was the time when the ghosts and the demons were roaming the earth, uh, moving around. And of course, it's, it's uh, paganism in the sense that these evil forces had to be dealt with in some form. But that's the first recognition that there were evil forces going back all these years. I think moving a little bit further on, uh, about the first century, of course the Romans uh, they arrived on our shores and the Romans um, adopted uh, the Samhain, uh, the Saw Win um, practices and of course they brought with them their own uh, ideals and, and beliefs and of course when you stop to think there would be practices around the world in the dense jungles of anywhere in the world where there are even today practices going on where the indigenous people will have their own fears of how to deal with the dead spirits coming back. I remember seeing something in the Amazon jungle somewhere where uh, all the old figures of the village were being remembered as the dead and people were celebrating these lives of people moved on. So I guess every uh, element of human behaviour somewhere along the line uh, likes to reflect on that. But here's the Romans arriving and um, interestingly enough they pick up on, on the practices. Uh, and funnily enough I was just reading about the fact that the Romans brought with them um, the goddess of the harvest was a, a lady by the name of Pomona. And um, Pomona of course is apples. And um, that I think is the earliest sign of apples having anything to do with uh, Halloween. Of course they didn't call it Halloween in those days but presumably that would be apples would represent the harvest or part of the harvest and here are the Romans practicing uh, celebrating apples and we can go on and talk about what happened to the apples later on but that was the introduction of apples in the whole scenario of uh, the, uh, the, the celebration by the uh, Romans in, in our land here. And then it goes on into, strangely enough, all these practices would be seen uh, by us now as, as pagan. But interestingly enough, in the seventh century, a certain pope began to establish certain uh, days in the year that were designated in the, in the religious calendar. And this is the first reference we've got where some of these practices are given names and, um, and, and one of them was All Saints Day where they were honouring the martyrs of, um, in the religious world. So we're moving forward from uh, old practices, pre-Roman, and now we're coming into a religious uh, influence coming from uh, Pope Benefice, I think, was the gentleman. We move further forward into uh, where we get more religious connections coming into the 11th century, where in November uh, we've got a day designated as All, Soul, All Souls Day. And of course that becomes eventually All Saints and All Souls Day. Hence the word eventually as uh, it was 
All Hallowtide, eventually it became the evening of Hallowtide, which became Halloween, the evening of Halloween. Now, this is a gentle process that was going on for hundreds of years. Uh, <laughs> so, um, of course, we as children took part in Halloween activities with no idea what we were doing. We were in total ignorance of uh, what practice we were, what we were following. But strange enough, we're in the history books because we were part of the practice. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's not. It's we move into uh, another period where things change slightly. I suppose to some extent we're now dealing with people who have got some degree of learning, uh, some degree of ability to read and write. We're moving into now the 18th century and as it happens that's the time when our Scottish bard Robert Burns uh, was born and lived and he uh, wrote about Halloween. He's got influences of Halloween in at least two things, two parts that I've read. But that, I think, is where the 18th century part uh, begins to develop. Because that was a holiday called Hallow Evening, and it first becomes um, Halloween. Burns wrote about that. We can perhaps touch on some of the things that were going on uh, in Scotland at that point in time. But if we move further, there was a, an amazing development because, as we know, there was a huge movement of um, movement from the Highland clearances in Scotland to what we now call the Commonwealth countries. There was also the mass exodus of Irish people to across the Atlantic. Both of these movements for different reasons, uh, took the people and their customs worldwide. And the 19th century, because travel uh, permitted uh, the journeying from Scotland or Ireland to practically by sail to any part of the, of the world, and with it the customs of Halloween um, were trans transferred as well. And so, you know, we come to the 20th century where it becomes uh, in the United States a popular holiday, uh, a designated holiday, and um, quite a quite a a, a time for um, celebrating, if that's the word. And and here we are in in the twenty first century. Halloween has become a worldwide, multi billion industry, probably for obviously economic <laughs> expedient ideas of somebody somewhere wants to make money but the ingredients are still this, are still there so that's a, a potted history Tom of how um, I've picked up on the origins so yes Scotland very firmly is at the root of, uh, of this worldwide practice that we now although perhaps different in its form is still being practised. Well, taking a step back to those early Halloween events, they would have been quite different from the celebrations that we have now. How would you say an early Scottish Halloween would have been celebrated? Well, I think it's picked up in um, Burns' poem, uh, which is called Halloween, and it's also uh, easy enough to pick up in all the things that we uh, read about Halloween. But obviously a bonfire is uh, a key element. The bonfires uh, seem to be practised in the 18th century. I'm not quite sure uh, 
if the bonfire was existing before that, in its semi-religious context earlier, I don't think there was any word of bonfires. But bonfires seem to be introduced at a later stage. So certainly in the Scottish context, a bonfire was a, an ingredient of the... And then, of course, there comes the neap lantern, or should I say turnip lantern. And we, as boys and girls, we scooped out turnips. And in my early days, um, having holidayed on a small farm, it was a great, a great excitement to carve out the turnip. And the turnips were in ample supply uh, and, and of course the turnip has a meaning it's carved out with the ugly face of a of a, a witch or a warlock and the, the meaning of this is that that is to stave off the evil spirits that's to tr that's to a, an attempt to scare the evil spirits and to protect us from the evil spirits and I, and I just came across a small piece of uh, information recently about the candle in the turnip and uh, <laughs> of course we, we had no idea what we were doing but evidently the light inside the candle represents the burning flame of a trapped spirit uh, trying to get out it's trapped in a spirit so we had no idea what we were doing we just happily carved out our turnips and, and, and off we went apple duking I've touched on the word apple introduced by the Romans um, the apple duking is uh, is an extra practice. Again, what does it mean? Why are we doing? Well, I suppose the apples were introduced by the Romans as as a as a thing to play with, but as the years rolled on, I think people tried to put a meaning on uh, what are we doing with these apples. And I think the first person to duke or duck down to the bottom of the basin and come up with an apple um, is the person that's designated to be the next person to be married in the village <laughs> now, I don't know if two people came up with the same apple or came up with an apple each at the same time there may have been a connotation that they were they were going to be husband and wife at some time <laughs> I think all sorts of crazy little ideas may have been uh, attached to the apples then treacle scones um, I personally have never actually had the pleasure of uh, dealing with a treacle scone but treacle scones were hanging on strings and uh, the idea was to try and take a bite and again maybe the person that finished eating the treacle scone entirely might have been the first person to be married or again there may be a link with some boy and girlfriend who knows um, the mind boggles as to how the, the treacle scone managed to stay in one piece when only a tiny crumb was left on the end of the string but that's another that's another question then nut, nut roasting. Strangely enough, I've always associated nut roasting with England. In my travels in England during the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, I've, I've seen the practice of uh, chestnut roasting. And I think in uh, Dickens' time and various other writers have touched on the subject of chestnut roasting. I didn't actually associate chestnut roasting in my own Scottish context, but I've subsequently managed to read Burns did in his uh, Halloween poem touch on the roasting, and here again, I suppose human nature tried to in invent some meaning in whatever uh, apples or treacle scones were being consumed. But I think um, again the understanding I have is if 
if a chestnut crackles and and fires off its hot bed of uh, roasting pot and lands on the lady's lap, then this is another signal that this may be somebody's future partner for life. Again, who knows how many little stories have been invented. So the nut roasting is, is part of uh, this. Then we've got to think of guising. I, I, I went guising with my pals. Boys only. We didn't go with girls. We went with boys, just boys. We went from our part of the town and not surprisingly we chose what we thought were the well-off parts of the town. A, because we thought we'd get some better um, rewards for our efforts and um, equally that somebody might have even been interested enough to listen to what we had to say. But we did in my time, and I'm talking about the 1950s, we would leave home dressed up in outfits uh, ghoulish type of outfits with masks carrying our neat lantern and of course what we were really doing although we were probably unaware of it at the time we were trying to scare off the evil spirits so we had to look quite evil ourselves and off we would go and we did learn a poem we did learn a song and um, sometimes we we would tell a joke and we did get excellent responses from the rich people in the part of the town that we inflicted our um, uh, our Halloween practices. And we did get some uh, nice money in our can. And we did not squander it. And we did use it for the purposes that uh, I think were intended. Which for us was that we were able to then finance our fireworks for um, the bonfire. Uh, for in those days we were talking about a a Guy Fox bonfire. The bonfire we were referring to was related to what we thought was the 5th of November. But here again, there lies the question, did the bonfire practice precede uh, Mr Fox? We don't know. I'm just um, asking a question rather than making a statement there. So guising was good fun and of course <laughs> because we were dressed up in, in, in the weird clothes and masks, we could probably walk up Kologi Road and nobody would know, oh there's there's the boy that sang that song because we were we were incognito. <laughs> that was one of the pluses. But another practice and this is something I've I think I've touched upon this, but again Burns's poem called Halloween uh, refers to the practice of kale pooling. Kale is a form of a cabbage or that f form, a savoy or a cabbage, a kale, usually used for human consumption, but I think in later years became a cheaper form of animal fodder uh, for wintertime feeding. But there was a kale pooling uh, practice where the kale had either been picked and we were left with the stock of the kale still stuck in the ground, still rooted in the ground, and the practice in Burns' time was to pick out these kale sticks and uh, it's a bit like a chestnut um, game trying to smash somebody else's chestnut. This was a practice of trying to see who had the strongest kale uh, stock and again what connotation we can put on who, whose kale stock bent first, what did it mean? Um, <laughs> I have no idea but that's, that was another practice Somebody perhaps can put some more light on that subject. So that, those are the main elements. They may not have all happened uh, in the 18th century onwards, 
but certainly in Burns' time, most of these were, were happening. And I came across an interesting thing the other day. Again, 18th century, but I'm not quite sure why this has been created. But there was a, an Act of Parliament called the Witchcraft Act of 1735, which forbade eating pork uh, as a pastime or with any pastries at Halloween. Why would that be, Tom? I'm not quite sure. Why would you be forbidden to eat pork mm. in a pastry at Halloween? Would it have some? Would it be a religious element, or would it be something to do with the fact that you wouldn't want to be seen to be uh, using a valuable food source? I'm not sure. But anyway, unbelievably, that act was not repealed until the 1950s. So nobody told me when I was guising. I didn't have to put. I shouldn't have been putting. If I, if I, my mum could have afforded it, that I shouldn't have been putting pork in my Halloween pastry. But <laughs> it's an interesting piece of legislation. So it was an active, an active uh, celebration, Halloween, and of course the religious element had gone out of it. And today, although Pope Benefice, way back in the seventh century, had had some connection with All Saints' Days and loosely connected with um, Halloween and the origins of um, of the, uh, the the Celts. Although all that happened, we've now arrived at the days since the 18th century where the practices are being uh, criticised largely by the church. They're seen as, as more pagan and therefore have no part in the church uh, practices today. So it's a strange turnabout of events uh, in an odd way. But yes, that's Tom, that's about as much as I can say. Um, happily, I've certainly enjoyed most of these practices I've, I've um, uh, accounted to you. And um, all happy, good fun. Now, it goes without saying, and you've touched on his name already, that the one person who played a pivotal role in popularising Halloween was none other than Scotland's national bard, Robert Burns. How did work such as Tam O'Shanter help to establish Halloween in the cultural mindset of the time? It's interesting, Tom, because Burns and all the material he wrote was so readily uh, read and um, consumed by the, the, the population, a population that was barely literate. There was some reading and writing because of all the countries um, in this part of the world, Scotland was leading the way in its very elementary um, education of its uh, young people. Villages all over the Scotland would have uh, a man who was the leading clergy uh, minister of the church, uh, who would in many cases be the only learned person in the village. And he would be what we call in Scotland the domine, uh, a, a teacher. And, and because of that learning by, of um, local people, Barnes's works were readily uh, available to be read about and to be read. And so when Barnes came to write anything, it was immediately uh, grasped as a reflection of the work and, and the life of the poverty-stricken people in Scotland. And uh, there was a huge divide uh, between the very rich and the... Um, and the very poor. Burns hit a note 
of uh, understanding the the um, the poor lifestyle of um, of his fellow man, and so when he wrote Tam of Shanter as an example, included in that tale of Tam of Shanter, the uh, the the man riding home to the Shanter uh, where he lived, <laughs> um, he's too late. He's been drinking uh, alcohol. He's left it far too late at night. He's dashing home, and he knows his wife will be uh, extremely angry to say the least. And he's aware of all of her uh, feelings. And as he sets off on his horse, uh, through the combination of his alcohol and his fevered brain about what trouble he's going to get into, his mind wanders into uh, all the dark, ghoulish, warlike, uh, weird uh, things in life. Somewhere along the line, Burns, who knew his mythology and knew his history um, of uh, Halloween. He would be well versed in understanding all of these things. Burns has very cleverly incorporated in his poem of Tam O'Shanter this fearful force that uh, Tam is faced with. So riding home uh, in pitch dark with a touch of moon and uh, he's seeing the silhouettes of the church buildings as he drives through the town. He, he's aware that the witches uh, could cast an evil spell on him and one of the things he's well aware of is that he knows if he can cross water uh, he'll be free from the, uh, the agony of um, being captured by the witches and warlocks. And so <laughs> Burns very cleverly uh, writes this into the poem and true enough Tam does ride across the Brig of Air and um, across the water and uh, at last he's saved except uh, Burns invents this, this, the story that the horse's tail has disappeared but that was the close shave with the warlocks so it's, it's interesting that um, what it was all about was Burns was understanding the, the influence of these dark forces and when you think about it the reason that we were talking earlier on and discussing guising, um, the forces were evil forces. They weren't forces where the dead were coming back in a loving nature. The, 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 the concept was that the evil forces were coming back to um, uh, scout around the land. And therefore that's why guising became important because we were dressing up as an evil being ourselves to ward off the evil spirits. So Burns very cleverly wove that into his uh, Tam O'Shanter poem. And of course Burns also wrote um, a Halloween poem which uh, uh, describes the antics of the young people with a bonfire. We've touched on various elements, the, the, kale, the kale sticks, uh, the bonfire. Burns represented all of that in his poem. And it's uh, an interesting poem to read. And I would thoroughly recommend that if someone can uh, access uh, the Halloween poem is to get it translated into its English uh, meaning. And that's well worth doing because it, 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 it casts a clear light on what Burns understood. And Burns himself as a boy probably practised the, uh, the bonfires, the, the, the nut burning and the guising and the turnip lanterns. He would do all that himself. And so he's in, he's introduced that, and so uh, yes, he re he reflected that in his in his work. 
it's it's uh, there are two excellent pieces where Burns has done that. It's often said that it was really the 19th century when there was a very large number of Scottish immigrants to North America that saw Halloween start to become more of a global tradition. Do you think that's an accurate way of putting things? I think it's accurate, Tom. Um, without going into too many reasons about why the Scottish um, and Irish people, for that matter, but I can only talk about the uh, the Scottish element, uh, the poverty and the ino- inequality and the the bitterness that existed between the very rich and the very poor in Scotland, uh, bearing in mind the population of Scotland in the 18th century was probably somewhere around one and a half million. Out of that, there were probably there were probably only twenty thousand very rich family members, very extremely rich landowners spread across the country. I'm not quite sure of the figures there, but it's of that proportion. The vast majority of people were poverty uh, in, in its greatest sense. I can give examples where, for example, in a, in a prison in Kilmarnock in Ayrshire, which is just several miles away from Burns, uh, uh, where he was born and brought up. The prison there in the 18th century, as an example, uh, written by a statistical account uh, written by the local parish minister, indicated that in the prison there were something like 60 vagrants locked up because there were a scourge on the countryside, uh, 50 or 60 uh, debtors, people who were um, down and they'd they'd failed to pay their um, dues and were locked up because they were a a debtor. Uh, There were women with children, women with uh, no husband but with uh, illegitimate children in the prison and of course to cap it all there would be a few people of real criminals <laughs> who were robbers. But the point they're making is that the vast majority of numbers, and this was typical of what I've read in a place like Kilmarnock, that this vast number of people were were uh, so downtrodden. And uh, that was a, a terrible indictment of the, of the way the country was run, because only the very rich were running it for the very rich. And um, so... There were, in fact, cases, well-documented cases, where landowners um, brought sheep onto their land, tried to clear all the highland areas, get rid of the people because it was a a, a more economic pastime or um, economic practice to, um, uh, rather than pick up rents, poverty, little paltry rents, and bring on sheep. But there's also other stories where the landed gentry not only did that, but prevented some of their uh, crofters from even trying to escape Scotland. And I know of one one case in the very north of Scotland, uh, in the Caithness area, where the Scottish people were being prevented. They wanted to go to Canada, and they were being prevented. That, such was the power of the landowning class at that point. Burns had a lot to say about that, was highly critical. And uh, if anybody wanted to read up, there there was an address to Beelzebub, B-E-E-L-Z-E-B-U-B, Beelzebub. Burns was highly critical of this practice of trying to prevent people going abroad. And this indicates, this was the practice, um, I think it would be potato famine in the case of the Irish, and it was certainly in the case of the landowning classes in Scotland, where people were fleeing from... Uh, abject poverty, 
no place in society. And they, they would take with them all these practices that uh, I explained earlier, the 18th century practices. They were very much part of their uh, psyche, very much part of their uh, normal living um, elements of life. So yes, uh, I can well understand why uh, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, these places, uh, Scottish people fled to a better life, a fairer life, and uh, where there were some uh, value, where they were valued, and there would be some reward uh, for their labours. But that's what they were not getting in Scotland. So yes, they they would take all these practices with them, and I would not be surprised that they would continue. Uh, exactly as they were uh, had been doing in Scotland. Now, if we, if we think about influences on the modern Halloween, I mean, you have a lot of um, influences like you know the Hammer horror films, the Universal horror films, old Vincent Price movies, things like that. What do you think that Scots of yesteryear would make of today's Halloween traditions? I mean, do you think they would have felt more at home with guising or say trick or treating um, than they would have done with all of the macabre horror conventions that we? I've come to associate with the season now. I don't know, Tom. It's a tricky one. I, um, I, uh, if I give my own example, I did all my guising and um, turned up lantern singing and giving poems at somebody's doorstep. We weren't invited in, by the way. <laughs> we had to we had to perform on the doorstep, and. Um, uh, I think maybe on a rare occasion somebody may on a very wild snowy night we may have actually been invited in but um the the issue of um that trick and treating has has become modernized trick and treating was not a term we used but I can understand the term in in the United States of America trick and treating uh it's it's fundamentally the same thing and Incidentally, the root of the trick-and-treating is that what was being offered originally, way back in centuries before, was that this, the original statement was to try and say something that would wave off any evil spirits. But the, but the, the reason for giving a, a, a presentation of a song or a poem was really born out of the idea that we were actually saying a prayer uh, for the dead. That that was the origin. It was it was a prayer of thanksgiving for the dead. And if the the, the deal was, if we like to put it this way, the underlying concept was that if we gave a song or a poem, it was for the soul of the dead. That was actually trying to say something on behalf of the soul of the dead. And in, and in exchange for that came the treat. So the word trick is not exactly right, but if, if the trick was to actually give a poem or sing a song, that the root of that was actually giving something in memory of the, uh, the souls of the dead. And if you did that to uh, a family, the family were going to uh, reward you with a, a, a sweetie, or a biscuit, or, or or money. So, I think uh, the modern practices have been commercialised. I think that's the safest thing. We've got mass productions of of um, masks. 
we've got uh, costumes, uh, we've got the publicity that um, can go around the world uh, on television and the publicity of how different countries are, are doing this uh, is, is now quite well, quite well known. So I think it's been watered down. And I have to say, in the 1950s, I had no idea what the root was, uh, the root of my practices and uh, all the history and the, uh, the, the, the meaning of what was lying behind uh, all our uh, tricking and treating. But today, I think equally, in today's 21st century, the young people will be equally, as I was, ignorant of the practices. But it's, it's been multiplied and uh, commercialised and now it's become a bit of fun. In fact, we hear today stories that the youngsters stand at the door and nobody's even primed them to say a song or say a poem. And, uh, and yet they expect uh, a sweetie or, or some money. So uh, youngsters today probably don't perform. We did, I'm happy to say we did sing our song or give a poem. But the youngsters today, I don't think, do so. I think, I think on the surface, they see the idea of just it's a means of dressing up, and um, it's it's an excuse to um, ask for money. And one final question: Now that Halloween has become such big business, enjoyed by people all over the world, what do you think are the key elements from the festival's formative days that have survived most prominently over the centuries? I think there's probably three. The masks um, are still uh, still being used. The ducking for apples still being uh, used, and and the idea of a trick and treat is there, but it's only there in part. It's there looking for the treat <laughs> without the trick, and um, I think that's uh, where the young ones probably um, miss out. But turnips. Uh, well, you see, you you can buy um, some form of lantern, a paper lantern, uh, with a battery, <laughs> uh, in in a in a trick shop, and um, there's no need to carve out a turnip. But so the the there the, there will be lanterns, paper lanterns, so masks, lanterns, a costume. Not perhaps nearly as uh, ghoulish and garish as what we did, but there. There'll still be masks, there'll still be uh, costumes, there will be apples, and there will be treats. And the only thing that's missing, sadly, is the trick. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robbie, as we sit here by our bonfire, amongst the cobwebs with our jack-o'-lantern, all that remains is for me to wish you a very happy Halloween. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I think I'll put on a different mask this year, Tom. <laughs> and uh, I may, just to confound my neighbours... I might just actually dream up a poem. I'm joking. But, um, I'd really like to go and try and do that myself. It would be quite good fun. But um, today, the world has changed so much that um, somebody dre turning up on your doorstep dressed with a, a ghoulish costume and a ghoulish mask, uh, you'd probably see a blue light from the police car before you knew where you were. So sadly, <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> That's where we are today. Anyway, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Tom. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Robbie, and thanks so much for having joined us today. Thanks so much for having tuned in, and I hope that you'll join us again soon.
she would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.